All right, gang, I guess we are ready to loot, scoot, and boogie, as they say. I guess that might be in leave, but. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your abundant mercies, and we thank you for eternal life promised to us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you may send forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that you may open our hearts and our minds to your saving truth. And we entrust this time into Mary's hands as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so today our, our topic is what was traditionally called the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. We're going to add some more in there, uh, you know, add purgatory, the second coming of Jesus, new heaven, new earth. And so this kind of fits in, right? Like I always like to talk about the logic of how, how we're moving, right? We started with uh, creation, or we started with revelation, God reveals himself, and then this story of salvation, right? That uh, God created everything good, everything was in order, Things got broken rather quickly in the fall. Jesus comes to save, comes to rescue, comes to restore. And that process of like salvation and sanctifications, all of our parts to become saints, preparing for the end, right? So in this kind of story of salvation, we're looking at the end of the story, right? The conclusion, which is kind of different from what we have been doing because we have been talking about what has happened before our time on earth, what's happened before we were alive, and what continues to happen. But now we're like, what's going to happen in the future for all of us? What, what do we have to look forward to? Well, we have the creed say, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So that's what we, we profess every Sunday in the creed at Mass, that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But what exactly does, what does that mean? What, what exactly is the life of the world to come? What does it mean, the resurrection of the dead? That's our topic today. What, is, what does this mean? But it first begins with like a, a question. The question that all of us face is, is death. I remember uh, All Souls Day. I want to say it was 2012, so 10 years ago on All Souls Day. Now Bishop Earl Fernandez, Father Earl Fernandez at the time, had, had the mass at the seminary, and he starts his homily. And as only he could do, and he says, you know, when, this ch when a, a newborn child is presented for its baptism, you don't know if that child is going to be intelligent or not. You don't know if they're going to be successful or not. You don't know if they're going to have a lot of kids. You don't know what the future holds for this child. The only thing you do know is that one day this child will die. What? <laughs> what? Uh, and, uh, you know, it was... You know, you can say that when it was all of us, right? You can't use that as the baptism homily. Um, but but he, he's right, right? That's, that's the one thing that every single one of us have in common. Whether you live in, you know, in a remote village in Nepal, or whether you, you grow up in Botkins, Ohio, or whether, you know, you, you grow up on the North Pole with the polar bears all of us are going to die. And so that's the question all of, us, all of us face is, well, what does that mean? And all the different possibilities, you think about that, um, where there are some people that say, well, death is really the end, right? Basically annihilation. When you die, boom, you're out of existence uh, forever. Or you think about something like Eastern religions that believe in, in reincarnation, that if you live a good life, you come back as some sort of higher form. If you live a bad life, you come back as a lower form, like a polar bear, or, you know. I don't know why polar bears are on my mind today, but, um, huh? Thinking cool. Thinking, thinking cool thoughts. Way. Yeah, thinking cool thoughts. So, in, so there's a question of like, how, how do we face this reality? Do we believe in an afterlife? And what does that even mean in afterlife, right? Our, our brothers and sisters in the, in the Muslim faith have, a, have a, a very different idea of what it means that we live forever. And, um, and you see that, and there's, I don't know enough to really speak about that. I just know it is very different. Um, so what happens that we die? 
And the study of these last things in like theology is called eschatology. So ology means the study of, so you think about like dermatology, the study of skin. Eschus means the end in, in Greek. So eschatology, you ever hear people talk about eschatology, the study of the last things. And uh, we got a quote here from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch all sinned. So this death that you and I face is a result of the fall, is a result of, of Adam, and Adam and Eve's fall. And oftentimes we look at those things, right, like uh, as the curses, right? Because you sinned, this is your punishment, right? And you think about um, he, and God also talks about the, uh, the labor, right? Like, Adam, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow or, or the pain of childbirth or the fact that they're going to die. But God doesn't seem to be one that just gives punishment because you're bad. This is, this is the way you're going to suffer because you disobeyed me, right? That's not really the way the Lord works. So when we look at this, through sin, death entered the world. In some ways, that's medicine for us, right? God wants to save us. He wants to heal us. And so our own mortality, our own fact that we're going to die, to think, how is that helpful for us? Right? How is that actually helpful for, for our spiritual lives? And, you know, it doesn't probably take too much imagination to think, like, the fact that I know that I'm not going to be here forever means I should probably, you know, follow the Lord. Right? The fact that I know that this, this life will end and 80 years in the grand scheme of things, 90 years is, is not that long. And so to, to kind of be moving on the right track, right? If we knew we were just going to live forever, well, that... I could, I could imagine there would be a little bit of like, eh, whatever, you know, doesn't, things don't matter a whole lot. So I think the fact that we die is, is part of the Lord's mercy, is part of his, his love to say, and even like the suffering that exists in the world, I couldn't tell you how many, how many times I've been on, by somebody on their deathbed and they're just in a whole lot of pain and they're suffering so much and to say like, this will come to an end, right? There will be a time when you're no longer like writhing in pain. And, and that's really good news. And even the suffering of, of this, we all have our crosses, we all have pain, and to know that there's an end to that in some ways brings a bit of hope. So death is, is, uh, is a remedy for us. It's not an easy one, but it is one. And there's a great... Um, of course, the first Christians believe this in all the, all the different ways that, that death could be a remedy. And there's, so these are just like images on, on uh, tombs from early Christians. So this uh, first one on your left is the Good Shepherd, right? So on somebody's tomb, the Good Shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders bringing it to the pasture. And to think about what, that, what that's like, and that's an image of what happens at death, right? Christ welcoming a, a member of his flock. And there's even one of the, um, I should just grab it, one of the prayers for, uh, for the, com so the commendation of the dying. So in, in the last rites, there's a couple different options for the commendation of the dying. And those are all just some of the most, some of the most beautiful prayers that, that we have. Let me see. So here, here's just one of them. I commend you, my dear sister, to Almighty God, and entrust you to your Creator. May you return to Him who formed you from the dust of the earth. May Holy Mary, the angels, and all the saints come to meet you as you go forth from this life. May Christ, who is crucified for you, bring you freedom and peace. May Christ, who died for you, admit you into his garden of paradise. Here it is. May Christ, the true shepherd, acknowledge you as one of his flock. May he forgive all your sins and set you among those he has chosen. May you see your Redeemer face to face and enjoy the vision of God forever. So may Christ the Good Shepherd acknowledge you as one of his flock, as one of his members, and bring you, bring you home rejoicing. So that's just a, a great image. The second one over there, you see a couple fish that look like they're kind of chewing on an anchor. I don't think fish actually do that, but the image is the anchor. And anchor is always an image of hope. So because an anchor keeps a ship in one place even amidst stormy seas. Well, hopefully it does. 
Um, and so that's, that's hope in eternal life, that amidst the storm, amidst the, the trials, the tribulations, an anchor can hold things steady. So whenever you see an anchor in Christian art, it's a sign of hope. Sign of, yeah. And then even um, the dove here. So we got a little dove. You see he's got a little palm branch in his mouth. Makes you think of Noah's Ark, right? So the, Noah sends the dove out to, um, to visit all, you know, to see if there's, there's land. And the dove brings back uh, this, this palm, this branch. And that's the sign that the storm's over, right? And, and new life is going to begin for all of those on Noah's Ark. So what a great image of dying to new life in Christ, that the storm's over and it's time to begin a new life, right? So that's, that's a, life is changed, not over. Possibly my favorite, though, is this one of, of the boat. So there's a, another, you know, another ship analogy, image. If you think about ships in shipping or sailing in, in those days is a perilous activity because there's no GPS, there's no motor to get you where you're going to go. You're at the will of the winds and the storms. And, you know, you don't have, you know, meteorology, however inaccurate it is. It's better than what they had in Jesus' time. And so shipping or sailing is, is a scary thing. And so arriving in port, you could imagine you're out to sea, you're out at the Mediterranean Sea, you don't know what's going to come out. But when you arrive at the port that you're hoping to go to, relief, rejoicing, comfort to say we, we made it there. So, so this is a, a ship entering port, right? And so that just to think about the relief that comes from, from entering your destination for eternity. It's a great image. And even uh, one I love to think about at, uh, at a funeral mass, because a funeral mass, we commend people into eternal life, right? It's like we're, we're sending this ship of their soul forth into eternity. And that's, that's just a beautiful image of, right, it's time for you to, it's time for you to go live, live a new life in Christ. All right. And then we get some, some biblical just kind of descriptions of, of death and, and what this new life is. So this first one from Romans chapter 6. Or are you unaware that we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. So we were baptized into Jesus' death. So it's like not so crazy what you know, Bishop Earl was talking about, about you know, baptism means dying with Christ. And it's even at a, the start of a funeral mass, Right? We go and we meet the body, we meet the remains of the person in the back of the church, and what, what happens there is um, we say a simple words, in the waters of baptism, you know, Ralph died with Christ and rose with him to new life. May he now share with him eternal life, right? So in his baptism, died with Christ, and now may he rise to eternal life. And then the remains are sprinkled, right? We sprinkle it, and I... There's nothing that says how, how many times you sprinkle it. Has anybody paid close enough attention to know how many times I sprinkle a casket? Can't see. Can't see? <laughs> I always do eight times because eight, it's the eighth day that Jesus rose from the dead, right? It's the start of the new creation, right? Seven days in creation, and then the eighth day is the new creation. So I always do eight times. Um, yeah. So the, yeah. So if it's a cremated remains, I always do three for the Trinity because eight just seems like a bit much to just, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, and so uh, we sprinkle, reminder of their baptism, and then a white cloth is put on top of the casket to, as a reminder of the baptismal garment that they're, that's given to them at their baptism. And then as, that, as the casket is wheeled to the front of the church, it's placed, and at the head of the casket is the Easter candle. In their baptism day, we receive the light of Christ from the, from the Easter candle. So it's, it's just beautiful that on the day you become a Christian on your baptism and your last day in the church have a lot of parallels and a lot of echoes. And so just really a beautiful, a beautiful kind of thing. So our baptism... Right? We share in Christ's death. 
Then also from 1 Corinthians 15, And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? There'll be a lot of things, references in here to 1 Corinthians 15. It's St. Paul talks basically all this about death and new life. But you, this is just beautiful that death has lost its sting. Right? That the victory, like Jesus, by entering into death and by rising to new life is basically unlocking its power, its hopelessness, and bringing about something incredibly new through it, this promise of eternal life. So... I love the, like, the victory that comes through that. Death is swallowed up in victory. All right, so there's this idea of what Christ does by rising from the dead is to renew, renew death and change it from the inside out, offering new life. All right, so that's kind of what Jesus does, right? Jesus, by his death and resurrection, unlocks the powers, busts open the power of death. For us, what, is this, what does this mean? I got a little schema. Anybody, like, anybody likes charts? It's a, it's a flow chart. I feel like my engineering days are coming back. Right? So, you know, somebody dies, right? Let's just say me. Father Sean dies. And then there's particular judgment, right? And we're going to walk through each one of these individually. So particular judgment, right? And this gets imaged through, like, going before St. Peter, or going before God, and you go to one one of three states, heaven, not states like Georgia or Alaska or, you know, Michigan, uh, three places of existence, right? Heaven, purgatory, or, or hell. Notice a few things, right? Those in purgatory, everybody, purgatory eventually has an end, right? And everybody in purgatory will go to heaven. Good news. People in hell, always in there, definitive. People in heaven, Never leaving. Always in heaven. So that, old, that, that goes on right now. And then eventually, though, this parousia, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. So all these things are happening like around the same time. right? The second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and general judgment. right? Final judgment, here it called that sometimes. And then uh, eternity. Forever. So that's kind of that's the uh, that's the it's the flow chart and kind of the schema of how this how this uh, takes place. So particular judgment, all right. So when we die, we go before a judge, and to think about what does it mean to be a judge. Sometimes the word judgment gets a bad rap, and rightfully so, right? Jesus says, "Judge not, lest ye be judged." And uh, to be a, a judgmental person oftentimes means with like, kind of like a superiority complex. Not really a good thing. But what do we mean when we say Jesus, we profess this in the creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, what does a good judge do? Ultimately, a good judge's single role is to figure out what the truth is. Right? A judge has people come before them and they try to figure out what is the truth. And that means they have to do their research, right? They have to call witnesses to the stand. They have to do all these different things to figure out what is the truth. And then the ruling's based on the truth that they've discovered in an ideal world, right? Assuming nobody has bribed the judge or um, everybody's telling the truth. A good judge figures out the truth. And so that's what Jesus does for us. What's the truth of our lives, right? Is our heart with the Lord? Or is our heart not with the Lord? All of those different motivations will... Uh, will be there. So it's based upon our fact, right? What's the basis of our life? This is particular judgment. This picture here is uh, St. Therese of Lisieux's mom. There's St. Therese, little, little Therese. Uh, her mom dies of, uh, of breast cancer in her 40s. They've got five girls. They're all there praying. So she's about ready to go to her own particular judgment. Which, you know, the good thing is it's based upon a fact, right? It's, it's not some, like, uh, willy-nilly judge of God that says, like, hey, I'm having a bad day. Uh, you know, I, the last three people were scoundrels. I'm in a crappy mood because there's all these pirates. I don't know why pirates and scoundrels. Actually, I do know why. I watched one of those Pirates of the Caribbean movie on Tuesday, so um, it was great. 
So, it's up to our freedom, right? It's not, it's not because God likes us or he doesn't like us. He loves everybody. But what's the basis? Right? If we're, we're going to go before the Lord, it's kind of good to know the ways, you know, like what you're going to be judged upon, you know? And whether it's a test or whether it's an evaluation we're going for, it's like, what is, what's going to be the basis of this? Kind of like to know, Lord. The good news is he tells us. Here's just two places, and there's so many different places. So there's one about belief. The, the story of, of Lazarus. Jesus told Mary, told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So simply believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Um, interestingly, in this one, if you remember how this story goes, he asks her then, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Son of God, the Messiah, who is to come. I, wait a minute, he asked if I'm the resurrection and the life. You said the Messiah and the Son. So she's not, she's still kind of wrestling with it. Um, so belief, right? The fact that we believe that he is the Savior. Which is good to start with that, because sometimes we think like our own judgment will be if I did X, I did Y, I did Z, I did this, right? Like I present this checklist before the Lord to say, see, I'm good enough to enter heaven. And that's never the case, right? Because we can never do enough to enter heaven. We simply say, Lord, you saved me, right? You saved me. You, um, you gave your, your son gave his life for me. And I have no merit to make it on my own. But I've tried to live my life according to how, how, you, how you've saved me and, and let that influence my life. So, right, there's nothing, nothing we can do to enter heaven. But if we believe in him, that means we should live our lives in a particular way. So this is from Matthew 25. Something probably all of us know. Uh, a little parable Jesus gives. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is when he's separating those sheep and the goats, if you remember that, um, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. Ill and you cared for me in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. So beautiful, right? The love, based on the love that we share, right? Do we visit in the sick, burying the dead, uh, welcoming the stranger, taking care of the sick, all these things, right? The love that we share is going to be the, is going to reveal where our hearts are. One really interesting thing, though, about this is, there's a whole lot, but they ask this question, when did we see you ill in prison and visit you? They don't really realize what they've done. Which is really interesting, like even those who are, who are going to be saints, like, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, they don't, they don't, they need a judge to reveal their full life, right? They're still in the dark a bit about the way they've lived their life. And there could be, very well be that for us, right? We go to our own particular judgment and the Lord's like, you help this person in a time of great need. Like, ah, I don't remember doing that. Like, and the Lord will, you know, he might reveal something of, well, they thought nobody cared about him, and you just picked up the phone and were calling them, and you got in this conversation about all sorts of stuff, and they decided that they were going to, you know, that that was a life-changing moment. Like, when did I do that? And it'll be something similar to that, right? So even, even the extent of our good actions will be revealed, and, uh, and that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. Maybe one, one other thing, and maybe this would fit later, but... Um, just an interesting thing in this parable. We hear Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this place is prepared for them from the foundation of the world. After this, like the part after this, he's going to go to the, the goats, right? Those that are going to condemnation. And he says basically something similar, like, right, you didn't visit me. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And he sends them, though, to the place prepared for the devil and his angels from the foundation of the world. 
which says nobody is prepared, like nobody, the Lord did not prepare a place for anybody in hell. Nobody's supposed to go to hell. The place prepared for people is in heaven. The, nobody is like, this is the place you're always going to go. You're always going to go to hell. That's never the case, right? There's nobody from the foundation of their lives that hell was their destiny. Like, the Lord even wanted to save Adolf Hitler, right? He knew the, the, the full extent of his actions and wanted to offer him mercy and love. He was not destined for hell. And who knows, maybe on his deathbed he had some sort of conversion. Um, outlook doesn't look good, but, you know, we should hope that that, that did happen. So particular judgment, right? Based on faith, based on love, um, based on, really, have we become like Christ? That's the, that's the goal of all of our lives, to become like Jesus Christ. All right, and then if you remember, there are three, three places for our own particular, after our own particular judgment, heaven being one of those places. So sometimes, you know, I've, I've done this with RCA, and sometimes there's a, there's a fun YouTube video to pull up about, about heaven, and it's The Simpsons. Anybody seen The Simpsons? So there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer and Bart become Catholic. And, uh, and Marge, makes it, Marge gets this vision of her in heaven, and she's in non-Catholic heaven. She's in Protestant heaven. And, uh, and everybody is there. They're very proper and very prim, like, kind of like English people. And they're playing croquet, and they're talking about the, the afternoon tea that they'll be having after croquet. And that's Protestant heaven. And, uh, and she says, well, where's, where's Homer and Bart? And, uh, and uh, they said, well, they're over there. And it's Catholic heaven. And um, let's see, what's in Catholic heaven? There's, uh, there's some people, there's people that uh, are like loving Our Lady of Guadalupe and beating a pinata. There are Italian people that are drinking a lot of wine, having spaghetti and kissing each other, which is, you know, seems to be Italian. And then there's Irish people doing a jig, right? So like all of these Catholic stereotypes. And the point of it is like, the, the point of the joke is that Catholics seem to have a lot more fun and there's a lot more liveliness. Um, Perceptions of heaven, though, all, you know, just kind of, it's a funny thing to think about. Well, what is, what is heaven like? Is it a pinata? Is it everybody drinking Guinness and doing an Irish jig? Um, probably, probably none of those. Um, but there's poetic things to think about, I guess, as much as you can consider the Simpsons poetry. Uh, <laughs> so who's there? Those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified forever with Christ. So come back to that line, perfectly purified, um, when we talk about purgatory. Um, so when is heaven? Heaven begins now, right? Heaven begins for those who die and their soul goes to heaven. So we think about at, at death, there is uh, the body still in the ground, right? Let's say... Um, yeah, I like to think my grandma's in heaven. So her, but her body is still, you know, in the the um, the cemetery just outside of Huntsville, Ohio. But I'd like to think her soul is in heaven. Still pray that that may happen. But but so when's it happening? Right? People's souls are in heaven. There's one person whose body is in heaven. By no, Mary. All right, all right. Remember from last week. That's great. So what is heaven? Heaven like? Well, we only get some clues, right? There's not like a full, a full description. First one is 1 Corinthians 2.9. That's where St. Paul says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it so much as dawned on man what God has prepared for those who love him. So it's unfathomable. Like it's so good that our own mind right now cannot wrap our head around how good heaven is. One of the, one of the other uh, things in 1 John 3, 2, let me just, just read this here from the letter of John. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we shall see God. So this is the, the beatific vision that gets talked about, that we can behold God, like this beautiful vision of the Lord, to be able to see him like unveiled. And to think about even as Moses sees God in the Old Testament, 
God passes by and Moses can just look at the presence of the Lord from, from behind and just see its, its effects, which is so often like, and, and even um, like the transfiguration, right? Jesus up on top of that mountain. They get to behold God in all of his beauty, all of his splendor, and then it kind of gets, gets veiled again. And that's how it is for our own lives. But to think heaven is to behold that for all eternity. Perfect love would be another, you know, to feel loved and accepted and cherished perfectly. Worship of God, we'll get to that a little bit in the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And there's a, a whole lot of biblical images. So probably the most popular, probably three out of four funeral readings, is this from John 14. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? So this reality of the Father's house, right? In your own, to think about the perfect parent that puts together the perfect house to know that their, their kids have a place, to know that they're, they're loved, they're cared for. So it's just a, a great image of, of heaven that Jesus gives. Any questions about heaven? A couple of them came up, came up last night um, that was kind of interesting. People asking about relationships with others in heaven. Right, to get, okay, I'm in a perfect relationship with God, but will I care about my friends? Will I care about, about my spouse? Actually, this was rather funny that came up. Um, you know, Jesus talks about um, they, the, par the, um, sorry, the Pharisees bring this reverse parable to Jesus, right? They tell this story. Uh, a woman had six husbands. Whose husband will she be for all eternity? And Jesus says, you neither know nor understand. For in heaven, uh, there, we are not given in marriage or received in marriage, but we're like the angels in relationship with the Lord. seems to say that marriages don't, aren't, don't have an existence in heaven, or a different sort of existence, let's say that. Um, and somebody commented like, so if you're not getting along with your spouse, this is really good news. <laughs> that was the takeaway, huh? Okay. Um, but very funny. I don't know if it was just, you know, all for a joke. But, um, but it seems to be that relationships with other human beings are important. We, even this, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, right? There's places for different people. It's not just there's a place for you, right? And our, our relationship in the church is never me and Jesus. It's never just merely personal. We believe in a communion of saints, right? This community of saints. And so if the Lord's going to prepare us in heaven in relationship, and there's other people in the church now, and the body of Christ, right? The church triumphant in heaven is, is there, well... It seems the reason that uh, there'll be a relationship with others in heaven. What that's like, I don't know. You know, we're going to go off and hang, you know, it's like, hey, Father Jerry, let's go, let's go hang out together. Probably not. I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but, um, but I hope Father Jared's there. So, all right, so heaven. Let's go the opposite direction. Hell. Huh? Uh, the worst possible reality. Right? To think about like how, how, what would be the worst possible thing to ever happen. The Catechism gives, gives a great definition of hell. The state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. God bless you. So a couple things in this definition. The state of definitive self-exclusion. So it's Definitive, right? It's, it's never undone. It's not like you pass hell for a little bit and then, you know, you did your time in the slammer and then you get out on good behavior. Definitive, right? It's, it's forever. Um, Self-exclusion, it's our own choice. Right? And that gets back to this, nobody's destined for hell. Even somebody as terrible as Joseph Stalin. Right? That's never, it's never forced you there. And maybe one of the, the most beautiful uh, literary descriptions of this is in a, it's a small book, it's a novel by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And it's a really fun book, but it's actually kind of alarming. Because what it is, it's like they take a field trip into, uh, into kind of like an in-between place where people who have died kind of have this last chance option for heaven or hell. And so the people can come out and they're kind of in the, they're in the gathering area of heaven and they're given an opportunity to stay. And, 
And so this, the narrator goes around and visits all these people that got off the bus and is like, hey, do you want to stay in heaven? And, all, and the people he goes to are ones who eventually they, they decide they want to go, they want to, go to hell. Because, and they, it's all because of the attachments they have. So there's, I, I can't remember all of them, but there's one person um, whose like, friend comes up and says, hey, you know, you come to heaven and, and all of this, and she's attached to her children. Her son lived a terrible life, and if her son couldn't be in heaven, she does, but she loves him dearly, she wants, to, she wants to mother him forever, but the fact that her son's not in heaven she doesn't want to be there if her son can't be there. So it's, and the, the, her friend is like trying to say, no, you know, it, it, up here it's, it's okay, like it doesn't matter. Every, God respects everybody's freedom. And so she chooses hell because her son's not in heaven, right? She's too attached to her, to her son and all of these different things, right? Like, I can't take my car with me? Oh, well then, I don't want to be in a place where I can't have my car. But you don't need it here. Well, that, that doesn't matter. I, I want to. So, it's this idea of like self-exclusion because something in their lives of those in hell is atta- is too attached to God, and um, purgatory is a place where that can be transformed, right? So, but not in hell. So, what's the worst possible reality? Exclusion from communion with God in the blessed. There is no trace of God's presence in hell. And that's the real pain of the whole thing. Is it getting physically beaten the whole time? I don't know. But the pain is none of the Lord's goodness is there. Think about the traces of his goodness that we see all over the place. Whether it's in a friend that is so kind and so caring. Whether it's in some, some beauty of creation, right? Seeing the sun rise or set. Like, none of the traces of God's goodness is in hell. And none of his presence is there. And that is the most horrendous part, right? And everybody there is only out for themselves, right? It's definitive of none of the charity that exists between people. The love is there. And so that's really what, what hell is. That there's no presence of God. There's no communion with God. And, uh, and that's, that's not really good. Jesus, of course, talks about this, right? Um, that, that hell is real. And there's, there's, uh, there's been people, gosh, even recently, priests, I read, I don't want to name names, but um, that said that, uh, that hell, hell is an idea to, to motivate us. And Jesus doesn't seem to just call hell an idea. I think for Jesus, hell is a reality. And he, talks, he calls it Gehenna, right? The fires of Gehenna. Like, that's the, that's the image. Gehenna's a real place, though. Gehenna is the place across the valley from Jerusalem where they would burn their trash. So the image that Jesus uses for hell is a burning trash dump. Literally, a dumpster fire, right? That is the image of hell that, that Jesus uses. And that's a powerful image, because you could imagine how horrendous that place would be, right? It'd be stinky, it'd be hot, uh, you'd never feel clean, you know, like you'd be sweating and all of it would be this nasty, you know, burning stuff. Anyways, garbage on fire, the image that Jesus uses for hell. And it's a motivation for us for conversion, right? The fact that it's, that it's real. And Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and those who enter through it are many. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those are, those are words from our Lord, right? Like, the, enter the narrow way. The road is wide that leads to hell. Now, that doesn't say that in everybody's in it, right? Um, there's, there's, no, um, there's no person that the church has ever said is in hell, right? There's people we say is in heaven. They're known as the saints. But there's no person, whether it's Judas Iscariot, whether it's Joseph Stalin, to say that person is not in heaven. Granted, the outlook doesn't look good for Judas Iscariot. Jesus says it would have been better if he had never been bored. Like, from the mouth of God, the God of love, that's not a good sign. However, even the church doesn't say that Judas is in hell. So that's good. So this reality of hell can be a motivation for conversion. Not the perfect one, 
right? And every parent knows this, right? If, um, if one of your kids does something because they don't want to get in trouble, okay, that's a start, right? I know I'm going to get punished if I don't clean my room. It's like, okay, that, we can work with that, right? That's not perfect. If it would have been, I love my brother and I share a room with my brother, I want him to have an orderly, nice room when he comes home from school, and I want to do what my mom asked me to do because I want to bring her joy, well, that's much better, right? It's the, the fear of punishment versus the, uh, the love and the good of another. Those are different things. However, the Lord can work with fear, right? Um, we call it imperfect contrition, right? If you're sorry because of the fear that, that happens, right? If somebody comes to confession and says, well, what brought you in today? Uh, well, I just don't want to go to hell. That's not the perfect answer, but the Lord can work with that, right? The Lord can begin to work with that and work through that. So, um, so it can be a motivation for a conversion. Is it the best one? No. Love of God is better, but... The Lord works with what we have at the time. So that's really good news. He's really super merciful. Any questions about hell? Okay. This is an image of Dante's Inferno. We're going to talk about literary journeys through hell. That's a fascinating read right there. Uh, he basically goes through all these levels of hell, and, uh, and it's uh, literary where basically the punishment fits the crime. So I can't think of anything offhand. I think there's um, those that that their primary sin was lust, basically are attached to somebody and spend their entire life attached to somebody or like in, in an embrace with somebody for all eternity, which that'll get real old real fast. So eternity is a long time. All right, so purgatory. So there's a, started up here with a, a quote from St. Jo John Paul II that he gave on a Wednesday audience on my 10th birthday. So August 4th, 1999, this is what John Paul II said. I think he wrote it in the card he had for my birthday. Just kidding. Uh, so he talks about purgatory saying, the term does not indicate a place, but a condition of existence. Those who after death exist in a state of purification are already in the love of Christ who removes from them the remnants of imperfection. So to kind of Think about that. So it's not a place, right? So you couldn't like put in your GPS purgatory and you get directions to go there, even if it's like you got to dig down 10,000 feet and there you'll find purgatory. But it's a state of existence our souls go to who exist in purification. So purgatory comes from the word purged, right? Being cleaned, being cleansed, being purified in preparation for, for heaven, right? And if you remember... Everybody in purgatory eventually goes to heaven. It's the preparation for heaven. There's some misunderstandings about purgatory, right? That it's some sort of middle ground between heaven and hell. Like it's kind of like that, ah, you were all right. You weren't bad enough for hell, but you really weren't good enough for heaven. So you, you get purgatory. No, it's, it's not a middle ground. It's a, it's a preparation for heaven. Is it a, a do-over, right? Or a chance to negotiate, right? To, to kind of, oh, you want an appeals court, right? The judgment said you, you couldn't go to heaven. Let's, let's have an appeal of that, of that judgment, and you get a chance to explain yourself. That's, that's not it either. But it, it comes from these um, biblical foundations. So um, let's see. Revelation here, 21, 27, talks about um, nothing unclean will enter heaven. So that purgatory being this place where we can be cleaned, where we can be cleansed. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.15 is, um, oh shoot, just escaped me is what it is. Maybe somebody has that. Maybe I can find it real quick. Yeah, the translation I have says the person will be saved, but only as through fire, right? So, um, and, and then even Matthew 5.26 talks about um, um, you won't be released until you pay back every last penny. So it's this idea of eventually a release, but going through a time of purification. 
And a great image of this is gold in a furnace. So when you put gold and heat it up really hot, the imperfections rise to the surface so that they can be wiped off, right? So that's how a goldsmith, that's how you get more pure gold, is you heat it up really quick and then get rid of, and that gets rid of the impurities in the gold. And so that's what happens to us, right? And what is this, is purgatory like really painful? Is it really, what, what is it? Um, well, that's an open debate. Because there's always this, you would think there's this knowledge that you're eventually going to heaven, right? And the fact that this will pass and the fact that heaven is ultimately the destiny, there's got to be some sort of hope and a lot of light. And even to think about, even to think about our own purging that happens right now, right? And I think sometimes we go through moments in our spiritual life that we really know the Lord is healing us. And it's oftentimes very painful, right? We get worried about whatever, and it's like, why am I struggling with this so much? And you realize, like, there's actually part of you, like, maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's a particular sin. And there's a lot of pain in the Lord fixing that in us. But there's ultimately, like, you can see the little fruits of it changing. So that's a bit of, like, how we experience purgatory now on earth, is through, a little, through some pain and through some suffering, the Lord can transform us to make us, make us better or make us more like him. So ultimately the place that this, um, that this comes from is from the book of Maccabees, the second book of Maccabees. So there's this, um, there's this incident where the Greeks are coming to fight against uh, the Jewish people, and Judas Maccabeus is leading the army, and a great portion of the army dies in battle. And they go, and they're going to go up and bury the dead. And they get there, and they start, you know, kind of preparing the dead for burial. And they realize that all these dead Jewish people had pagan amulets that they were wearing around their neck. And he's like, this ain't good. This is a sign of why things weren't great. They were all a bunch of closet pagans. And Judas Maccabeus says, we have to pray for these men that the Lord may forgive them. Which seems really innocuous. But what do you mean you can pray for the dead? Right, that their, their life, because they're dead, is not already over. So the fact that you can pray for the dead, that they may be forgiven after the grave, shows that God can save beyond the grave. And they can be purified of this sin, which is basically what purgatory is. So we pray for people who are dead, right? We have masses offered for our loved ones, so that the Lord's mercy may fill them with life, and that the uh, that they may be cleansed and prepared for, for heaven. How long does that take? Well, there's never, a, there's never a definitive thing. Like, a long time in purgatory could be five seconds. Could be 500 years. Right? There's, there's no like, definitive like, time. The only people we know that aren't in purgatory are the saints in heaven. So... If somebody came and said, hey, I want, to have a, I want to have a mass offered for the repose of the soul of St. Teresa of Calcutta, that's not necessary. Mother Teresa's already in heaven, right? So, so it's to, it's to pray, for, pray for the dead. And you get this really particularly in a funeral mass. So in a funeral mass, in the Eucharistic prayer, there's a whole long insert for the person whose funeral it is. Um, which is really, really nice and really beautiful. Otherwise, every Mass, you notice in the Eucharistic prayer, we pray for the dead. We pray for those who have passed in general. So purgatory. God can save and heal beyond the grave. Somebody asked, asked a, a question last night that I think was really good. They said, well, I go to confession. I confess my sins. I'm forgiven. What does purgatory do then? Right? Like to think, if, if we make a good a good, holy, uh, complete confession on your deathbed, what's left? A great question, right? Because we've been forgiven. Remember, we, to be prepared for heaven is to be perfect. To be able to have, not have any attachments towards things that aren't God. So think about one, a sin that oftentimes we struggle with. I know I've struggled with is gluttony, right? Eating more than is needed. And to think about why, why we do something like that, right? And this is just my own life, right? You have a day that's a bit stressful, that's a bit rough. You get home, and what am I going to do to make things better? I'm going to seek my comfort in this bag of Doritos or whatever it may be, right? Hostess cupcakes. And it's, so 
although the, the sin has been forgiven, the habit and looking for peace in a place other than God or in things that aren't really helpful is actually what needs to be healed, is actually what in my life needs to be transformed. And granted, the Lord can do that now, right? And that's the saints. They live this now because they, they seek their peace in the Lord. And you can look at, right, all different sins fit that way. Looking for affirmation and love in somebody, right, lust other than the Lord, right, to have that part of our heart healed. The sin's forgiven, but we are still a bit broken, and that's what the Lord wants to fix in us. All right, but eventually purgatory, right, comes to an end, right? And there's nobody in purgatory because all of these, uh, these three things happening about the same time, right? The second coming of Jesus Christ, his voice goes out and raises the dead, and then the gen general judgment on the whole world, the final judgment. So the resurrection of the dead. And this is oftentimes something that um, we miss, I think that our bodies will rise. Right? Oftentimes we think of like our, our soul being in this body as a vehicle, but Jesus' body rose from the dead, and so for all eternity, we'll have some sort of, of body. And in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul talks about, well, what will ours be like? It'll be like Jesus's. Right, so Jesus is really physical when he rises from the dead, right? He's able to eat food. He's able to say, Thomas, hey, Thomas, put her there. And, uh, right, he can be touched. But he doesn't follow all the rules of physicality because he walks through locked doors. He just shows up and dis he disappears on the road to Emmaus. As soon as he breaks bread, Jesus is gone. So he, there's, there's a physicality to his body, and yet the laws of physics don't seem to completely apply. Um, this line, um, five, John 5.29, talks about, um, it's when Jesus says, uh, soon the, those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Lord and they will, they will hear his voice and come out of the tombs. So it's the voice of the Lord that does this. And then this talks about the resurrection of the dead and the second coming happening at the same time. So Jesus comes again um, to judge the living and the dead. And this is when the resurrection of the dead happens. This is why um, early Christians never cremated the bodies, right? This is why they didn't burn, they didn't burn the body because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. So um, cremation being a very recent thing for Catholics to be allowed to do because of the belief in the resurrection of the dead and the honoring of the body. Now you think, well, what happens if somebody's unfortunately is burnt alive, right? There was an unintentional cremation, so to speak. Um, so that's why that was the case. Now um, it changed. Well, I'm not Paul the Six, Pope Paul the Six, so I can't tell exactly what his thinking was, but I could surmise from from just um, different things that that happened around that time, so that. <clears throat> I wasn't alive in the 70s or the 60s, so this is just me reading things. A lot of society was upheaval, right? Things were changing rather quickly, and things were changing rather rapidly. And, and even like in, the, in the, the culture of the church, things were changing. So with a lot of things, things were already happening before Paul VI made a decision. So for example, the reception of Holy Communion in the hand is something that Paul VI gave permission for. But it was already happening already, right? People were already receiving Holy Communion in their hand. And so basically the decision that Paul VI had to make was, do I bring down the law on people and say what you've been doing is wrong, or do I widen the permission to allow to, so that people aren't fallen, aren't wandering away or whatever, right? So the same thing happens with cremation. People seem to already be being cremated. So do we lay down the law? Or do we open things up so that the people who are already doing these things are not cut off from the church? A prudential, a prudential decision, you can look back and say, well, did he make, and there was, a, there was a whole lot of things like that. And you think about even, um, and even the question like, do things, is this necessary for our faith? Or is this thing, something like cremation that 
it's been a tradition based on a belief, but it's not absolutely essential for the faith. Paul VI had to do this with contraception also. When Humanae Vitae came out in 1968, the question was, is, is it okay or do we widen the, uh, the permission so that people who are practicing this don't feel like they're outside the church? And that one, he came down and, you know, and was firm and said, well, this is actually integral to what it means to be Catholic in, in our own lives. So we, we actually can't go this way in, on this issue. So. I don't envy Pope Paul VI at all, or any popes for that matter, all those decisions. So anyways, that's, uh, that's cremation and a whole bunch of other random things. Okay, I have a question. Why did we have to have a general judgment? Because we had the particular, and that was decided whether you go to heaven or hell. Why was there a general judgment at yeah. the end of the world? Well, that's what the, the second coming of Jesus is. So, but there was there any judging going on? Well, you think about all who are still alive. Oh, right? Oh, All at once. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's also him definitively dealing with evil. Right? The devil still has a bit of his ability to, to entice those who are members of the church. And he's forever vanquished at the second coming. Right? There is no influence that he has on any of those in heaven. So it's ultimately the judgment on evil to say, you have no place here. Yeah, back to hell forever. So that's pretty cool. So the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is just talking about judgment also. I just thought that was, uh, this is from the catechism's part on the general judgment. In the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare. Beautiful image of, of what a judge does. So, but of that day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. It's always really important to know that, that we don't know the day nor the hour. And really, for thousands of years, people have said, well, it's soon, right? Just look at the world that it's going. This is, this is the time that's ripe for the second coming. I mean, even... I mean, even in our own day and age, there's, there's uh, people that, that say that. There's people in the 1200s. That was a whole big thing that happened then. Um, and everywhere in between, I mean, it's all over the place. And so just to know this, Jesus says, of that day, of that hour, no one knows the time. So if anybody tells you differently, refer them to Jesus. So... Um, oh, and so this is, do not be amazed, this is from the Gospel according to John, do not be amazed at this, because the hour is coming which all who hear in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked deeds to the resurrection of condemnation. Interesting little kind of added thing there, a resurrection of condemnation. Think if, if, if somebody's in hell, that part of their resurrection is they're going to experience hell corporally, right, as part of the, the body also. And that's, that makes it all the more unpleasant. So, so the second coming of Jesus um, at the end of time. And ultimately, he's leading towards good news. The, the last, last, two, uh, last two chapters of the book of Revelation could quite possibly be some of the most beautiful things ever written about God's plan and what the Lord does. And there was, a, uh, there was a, a priest from the bayou that I heard one time, Father Michael Champagne, and he's, he's a wonderful man. He gave us a retreat, and he was telling us about how, uh, you know, there's this one guy I knew, and he was always sour-faced and always real sober, and I, I just asked him one day, hey, fella, you ever read the end of the book? And he said, what do you mean, the end of the book? You know, new heaven, new earth. God's going to conquer all. Take it easy. And uh, right, we always got to remember the end, the end of the book. This new heavens and the new earth. And the heavenly Jerusalem, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So that's, that's all in this last two chapters of the book of Revelation is what eternity will be like. That God's going to transform heaven and earth and be this new heaven and new earth. And it's so beautiful and so poetic because you think about at creation... There's a garden, and their fall happens on a tree, right? Happens when they, they go to this 
eat the fruit from the apple, or the fruit from the tree. And then in salvation, Jesus definitively makes resolves to save us in a garden, in the agony of the garden, and then he saves us upon a tree. Right? He dies on the cross. And in the new heaven, in the new earth, it's the image of a new garden, and in the middle is the tree of life that brings life to all of God's people. So it's just beautiful, those, those themes just run right throughout our story, throughout um, heaven and earth, or throughout time, I guess. So this is worth, worth reading. So this is the start of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, as God himself will always be with them, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the, for the old order has passed away. So think about just some of the imagery there, and also the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the city, right, the church, is a bride prepared to meet her husband. So what this eternity is, is the eternal wedding feast. To think about how beautiful a marriage feast is when you see these two people are going to be with each other for the rest of their lives. And so to think about for the rest of God's life, which is eternity, we, his people, will be with him for eternity. And that moment of, like, of, of sealing that covenant at a marriage is perpetuated for all eternity. And, and that's heaven, is basically to share in this wedding feast of God and his people for, for all eternity. And that's something to look forward to. That's something really to have a lot of hope about, that the Lord will wipe away all the tears, all the pain from our eyes, and we'll be there worshiping him for all eternity. And that's really good news and maybe a good place to, to kind of land the plane. Unless there's questions, right? I've got some questions. Death, judgment, heaven, hell, purgatory. All things that are fun. Nothing? Um, actually, there was, gosh, there was a lot of questions last night, and so they're just kind of still racing through my head. And somebody asked about people's experiences, right, of near death or like even death experiences, and how do you reconcile that with, with these? Uh, the people... So there's a, there's a great little chapter in a book by Father Robert Spitzer about this. I think it's part of his like proofs for the existence of God. And he kind of just like gives a general overview of a lot of these, a lot of these cases. And he says, people who, who seem sane, right? So not the drug addict who gets, who gets the, whatever the medicine is and they come back, right? That's a, that seems to be a different thing of what they experience. But people who seem to be of sound mind who seem to have medically died, but then seem to come back and they report some sort of experience, there's oftentimes similar themes to all of those experiences. Light, right? And the option to come towards the light. Peace seems to be a general experience that people have and, and being, being well-loved. So, and none of those are like really at odds with anything that we say about heaven. And so are they real? I mean, they're not part of divine revelation, but they all seem to have a similar pattern to them, and they seem to have like a similar, uh, a similar structure. Some of them involve a person that, that appears to be Jesus, and um, so it's kind of an, an interesting thing that those things seem to, seem to be real, and they seem to follow a similar pattern, and people seem to be of sound mind, and they've really experienced something like that. So, um, so you take those for what they're worth, right? Um, yeah, people's lives and their experiences um, being similar to what Jesus reveals. So, that's cool. I guess we'll pray then. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we give you thanks for the eternal life that you promise us and that you offer us through the death and resurrection and ascension of your Son. 
We ask that you may help us always to remember that the time we have on this earth is passing and that we may recommit ourselves towards living for all eternity. And we entrust this time into Mary's hands as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think next week we're doing an introduction to the sacraments. So we'll do kind of just talking about the sacraments in general before going to, to the sacraments individually. So... Come back next time.